0: all right 109 episodes deep now and we have rafe kelly on today's program thank you guys for joining thank you rafe kelly for being a part of this one he's the founder of evolve move play he was a co-founder at parkour visions in seattle he's one of the longest most well-renowned practitioners in american parkour history and he's one of the most brilliant thinkers in the whole community i would say Um, very well read He's talked on his podcast with many of the other contemporary voices in the world of philosophy and uh, you should check it out. Everything will be in the description. And on this episode, we talk about parkour philosophy a little bit and what your movement practice might develop you into and why you would want it to develop in that direction. And it's so great to catch up with him. It's been a long time. I hope to see Rafe again in person soon. And he's one of the more interesting and, you know, mature leaders in our community. And so I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Here we go. All right. So thank you for joining the program. Um, I have many things to ask you, and we don't have as much time as we probably need for covering all of them. But I appreciate you making the time for me today. i a busy guy. Um, Yeah, thanks, But you've been doing some amazing things, and, you know, I've been paying attention to you. You're one of, like, the champions of parkour, pushing the boundaries of, like, where – our territory even is, I would say, you know, it's like, what, what is a parkour athlete? And I think you've expanded that definition quite a bit over the years. So appreciate you for that. You've been talking to some of like the greatest contemporary thinkers of our time. I feel like, you know, on your own podcast, John Paj, I can't remember his name. John Pajot, John Berveke, Paul Um, um, Check. some of my favorites at least. (laughs) And real briefly, I just kind of wanted to touch on that. Like what's it been like for you to, to expand to that and wh- how do you see that definition of what makes a movement athlete also someone who relates to this philosoph- philosophical thinking and, and, and why you're talking to these guys um, and how is, that, is it related to your movement practice?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start with this. I don't think most people know that Socrates met Plato in the gymnasium right so the the origin of western philosophy starts in movement practices right uh socrates was a stonemason and uh plato was a wrestler he was a pretty decorated wrestler plato was in his name i think his name was aristocles but he earned the nickname plato which means broad because uh the breadth of his shoulders when he's wrestling so we have this image of philosophers as kind of nevish intellectuals um, you know, and that, that's not how it began. And so I think that there is something inherent to like deeply devoting yourself to a movement practice that, that opens a doorway to a more philosophical outlook on life. And I think that I've just happened to be gifted, um, in that area in a way that I can articulate those connections. And it's something I've been interested in from the beginning, right? I remember in 2006 being on parkour.net forums and everyone talking about this idea of parkour philosophy. Mm -hmm. Like parkour, you know, parkour wasn't just jumping off of things. (laughs) It was this philosophy. And that was what, what was really motivating and important to a lot of the early adopters of parkour. But my sense was that parkour was, as a philosophy was relatively incoherent um i think there's something that emerges out of the practice the practice in embodies a philosophy but you know the 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 founders of parkour were mostly not highly educated people right they were um they're deeply educated in the body but taking it to that ability to really articulate exactly what they were experiencing and what it meant was um wasn't an easy thing and and especially for us who are english speakers right because most of the people who started it were, were you know they're monolingual in french right so they could explain things in a way that worked for other french-speaking audiences but when it was translated in english i think a lot was lost in translation because um and, and you know into russian and spanish and every other non-french language too mm. um so i think there was something lost in translation there about what the philosophy was and they were young right like the guys who started parkour like when we all like in 2005 when i began parkour like david was in his early 30s right these guys they were figuring it out right it was still it was still it wasn't like they'd been building this idea for 40 years and then were like ah this is this is the really deeply conceptually articulated version of it they were like hey we can do some really cool stuff and it's connected to this idea that we have and let's make a video and the people were like wow the video right mm-hmm. and so i think that the 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 fame of parkour outpaced the cultivation of its um uh of its actual philosophy and i mm-hmm. think we're still in some sense playing catch up so uh, that it's makes sense it's very yeah so I, totally yeah
0: <laughs> no i love that that's very interesting i like the way that you're putting that and we are getting somewhat of a resurgence i feel like in this area maybe you yeah. would agree um sad obviously has been coming out with certain mm-hmm. clarifications recently on his you know perspective on it and what he felt was the takes growing up and what influenced him obviously yeah. bruce lee's a big influence on him um what are you thinking like where it's headed and how would you do you think ph- philosophy parkour philosophy has a place and how is how does it compare to? Is there are there other practices that have the same philosophy or you know is it you know, yeah. martial arts, having a philosophy, does it fall into a category of a style of philosophy for you that's different from? Um, you're obviously much more well read than me. So I appreciate, like, yeah, sure. you know, no, learning just about like where these things fit in because I haven't done yeah. as much homework.
1: It's an interesting question. Like, where is parkour heading? Because I don't, I don't, I guess I don't think really, I mean, I have a sense of concern for the community right like i want the community to do well and like i'm still involved and i you know i check in on people and have conversations but when i created an involvement play was really to create my own sandbox and escape some of the limitations around parkour it was like i like to train in nature i didn't want to have to like be like like when i like a lot of times when i'm training with parkour guys it's like pulling teeth to get them to go try to jump through a tree or on rocks right Mm -hmm. so i was like And then I felt like when I was at, when we were, when I was at parkour visions, like we had this really clear definition of parkour, right? It was parkour is the art of developing the ability to overcome obstacles effectively and of developing the self through this. Right. So that was our working definition. But what I noted over time was that as parkour developed more and more of an online presence, it was like getting people to adopt our philosophy of parkour became harder and harder because they came with their own ideas It was like when a student came to me in 2008 they were like ready to just learn whatever i told them parkour was but when they came to me in 2012 2013 it was like they'd watched 50 jesse laflair videos and that was what they expected parkour to be in like mm-hmm. no offense to jesse i like jesse as a person but that wasn't where i was right and so it was like i, I felt like i was having to kind of try to fight with the mainstream of how the culture was developing in order to focus on the things that were most important to me. So I went and I did this, this thing. And like, you know, I've always, um, so I worked with the guys who founded MoveNet in 2006 to 2008. And they were, Erwin was really, really clear about like, we have to separate from parkour. We have to be like, we want to create as much brand separation for parkour as possible because didn't want it to be associated with like kids jumping off roofs and parkour people don't like to spend money right (laughs) (laughs) but like they're they're good branding reasons why you wouldn't want to be associated with parkour but that was deeply dissatisfying to me because it was like but that's that's bullshit right like you know that this is where these things came from you know this is where this inspiration was you know that these are the the people you can go do stuff with who can really throw down it's like you know there's there's basically nobody who's come through natural movement who can play at the level that I can play at. Mm. Like if I want somebody who can really move the way that I can move, it's almost always a parkour person who can come and do that with me.
0: Interesting. You just made me think of something. Were you you finished? I'm sorry. So you talked about how there's the Socrates and Plato, they met in gymnasium. There's like the development of the, I don't know if you see it as a dichotomy at all, even. But let's yeah. say there's a development of the body and, and movement practice, mm-hmm. and then there's a development of the mind and kind of a, uh, yeah. I don't know what you would call that, like a contemplative practice, maybe, or something like yeah. to that degree. Yeah, we talk about
1: actually uh, there there are four fundamental pillars of uh, of what we call the ecology of practices of the mm. EMP. That's movement, mindfulness, nature connection, and community. Mm. Um and then if you want to get into it we can talk about the two <laughs> the two undeveloped pillars which is spirituality and and ancestry but uh, uh
0: interesting yeah I'd we'll love um, to talk about that
1: the, these these all have to do with this this idea of like what are the fundamental relationships that any individual has to um has to harmonize well in order to experience um the best life right mm. uh plato talked about this idea of the self the mind as essentially composed of three different things he called them the man the lion and the monster so the man is the part of you that can um perceive the future and plan and make you know you know make rational decisions Mm -hmm. right so if you decide to to you know, not eat certain things because it destroys your gut as we were talking about before the call, right? (laughs) It's the, it's the man that makes that call. Right. But there's also this part of you, which is like a monster, which is just the appetites that you have. It's like, you see the chocolate cake and you're like, I don't care that I'm gluten intolerant, (laughs) that I'm celiac (laughs) disease. It looks delicious. I want that (laughs) sugar and fat in my body right now. Right. So those, that's the monster. And then there's the study of the lion, which is sort of like, um, it's sort of like the social dimension right hmm. it's like all the pressures are on you that come from the whole social relational world so you may be like oh i don't want eat cake but you know the host is going to be disappointed if i don't eat this cake right oh interesting right There's so you like have that, to play. that that sense of how other people perceive you and that's that's sort of what he talked about and then this this tripartite division of the mind has come up like multiple times because that's basically Freud's concept of the id—that's the the monster, right? The conscious—that's that's sort of the the man, and the superconscious, which is which is the projection of um, of of society in your mind, um, and then you know the 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 mammalian brain, the reptilian brain, and the forebrain, right? Like we, we keep coming back to this, but I look at it a little bit di- di- differently. Like the, the fundamental problem that life has is coordination problems right so we start as like these single-celled organisms and then they're like they start to work together and they develop organs inside them it's like there's lots of different subsystems and you can kind of divide it all the way down to incredibly small pieces but at every level you're trying to integrate them so you have this this diversity of things that are trying to be integrated into something higher well you are a diversity of different motivational states and emotions and physical components, and you're trying to coordinate all of them better. And mindfulness and movement, they help you coordinate who you are better and get it all working in, in towards a common goal. Mm -hmm. But you you don't end at your skin, Mm -hmm. right? You are continuous with, you are a product of the physical environment and the social relational environment and so you need to you you want practices that also help you harmonize at those level can i have more options can i have more connection can i be more deeply attuned to the natural world or to the physical world around me and then can i do that also at the the level of of the people um around me and then when you get into the level of of the spiritual um i'm not someone i'm a physicalist right i believe that everything we can explain can be explained within the realm of 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 science and and what is what is physical but um i i also don't think i have a foreclosure argument on some other you know dimension beyond that but that's just where i think that we can do good causal analysis right Mm -hmm. um so but what we can see is that like when you talk about the parkour community what is the parkour community it's, it's this like network of minds
2: mm-hmm.
1: like, like you are a network of neural structures that are not, they're not exactly one thing.
0: Yeah. I could be, can be a in neuron in this network in a way. Right. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? And then you could just say,
1: it's the same type of thing. Like, I, I really sort of understand this through the work of David Abram and, uh, John Young who's reading the spell of the sensuous and, um, And what the Robin knows, and also listen to my friend, John, barbecue, who we mentioned um, at the same time. And I started to think, so if you walk through the woods and you listen to the birds, the birds will tell you if there's a predator nearby. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily any one bird. It's this like signal that's moving. That's propagating Mm -hmm. itself through the whole neural network of the birds. And this is starting to come out in cognitive science. There's this idea of we intelligences. So like, there is a spirit of parkour, Mm -hmm. which is like the sum of the neural network of people who are doing parkour and that spirit like you're asking, what is the future of parkour? It's like, well, the spirit is changing all the time. Mm -hmm. It's things are uh, shifting within it. um, And it's hard for any one individual to see it. I do see that, that there's a growing interest in parkour as something like, a pathway into spirituality or as a, as a, the grounds of a wisdom practice. I think part of that's just that we're old, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Like had, I'm parkour old is what I call it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm regular young, but I'm parkour old.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I had a 16 year old at my one of my like long seminars. He's like, I loved all the games, but I didn't get all the philosophy. And I was like, you were not supposed to get all the philosophy. You're 16. If you got it, I'd be really impressed. But like, mm-hmm. like dude, just have fun. Like, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you may you may remember this like 10 years from now and be like, oh yeah, that, that guy Rafe, he was on to something. <laughs> right? it's, you know, sometimes the message isn't isn't where isn't where you're at yet. Um, and like as a community like nobody like i was the old dude in parkour like from the moment i started at 23 <laughs> right <laughs> yeah.
0: thank you for being that guy
1: yeah and so it's like you know but now it's like there's a there's a few of us who are in our 40s there's a lot of us who are in our 30s and like 30 year olds are concerned about things that 18 year olds aren't and they want to articulate and they want to have a sense of who they are in a different mm-hmm. way and they their lives present different problems to them so, yeah, there's a there's a growth, there's a change in the spirit of parkour as it as it as the participants change themselves. Mm. Okay, I've, I've kind of gone all over the place. No,
0: I love it. There's so much to go off of from there. Um, I mean, would you say that they're like so we're having a maturation process? It almost sounds like yeah. as a as a spirit. If you you know look yeah. at us as this network of practitioners yeah. and. You know, you could look at our consciousness. Oh, I, I've been talking about this with some other people. I'm, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with the spiral dynamics model. And because um, mm. I know you are a fan of Ken Wilber's work. And I know he had a hand in, in creating that, did he not? Or at least advancing it. The, no. He didn't? I mean, okay. Ken,
1: Ken, I'm aware of Ken Wilber. I'm not a super big fan. Oh, maybe fan not of a fan. <laughs> um, I, I, I think I, I like some of his ideas a lot i run into a lot of people in the integral world. Like there's uh, a lot of overlap with the worlds that I occupy in the, in the Wilbur world, but Wilbur, like, like when I got interested in all this stuff, like the Wilbur phenomenon has already kind of died down in a yeah, sense. Yeah. And right?
0: I don't really know anything about, anything about Wilbur. So I probably should keep him out of my mind. I think a time. good way,
1: <laughs> I think a good way to think about Wilbur is like, he's the Jordan Peterson of the 1990s.
0: Oh yeah. Interesting. Ooh, that's a right? fascinating and, statement. <laughs> a lot of people who are like
1: Wilburites. Yeah then went deep into the Jordan Peterson and then also like the people who, who are really into Jordan Peterson now are the people who would have been really into Wilbur in the 1990s. I
0: think. Okay. Interesting. So, well, oh man, what was I going to say there? It was just like, so there's this maturation process maybe though. Anyhow, there's yeah. almost like it could be, it could mirror it, you know, in spiral dynamics, what I liked about it was that it's it's trying to make sense of um, a, an evolution of society or yeah. a civilization mm-hmm. in, in a way that also could apply to an individual's growth and ele- evolution across time. Yeah. And you could see that again, for the community, maybe we're at like a certain consciousness level. So like you said earlier, we're, we're still developing, we're maybe playing catch up with our philosophy because mm-hmm. we're in still somewhat of a play mode or we're still some like somewhat like that 16 year old in your workshop where we're not really getting it yet. We're having a good mm-hmm. time. But as a collective, maybe we haven't developed ourselves or we're entering now in this phase where we're developing ourselves and really taking a look at some of these bigger questions. And what I want to know is like, because I love that statement, like, okay, there was the Jordan Peterson of today and there's the, there's the Ken Wilber, who, who yeah. was the Jordan Peterson of yesterday. Yeah. Do you feel like then that there's just these energy or like, how do you see that society has this counterbalancing like act like what was the parkour of the 90s maybe even is maybe a interesting Skateboarding. question skateboard okay <laughs> there you go so what is the right. role so you yeah, do you are you seeing us there's just like almost a vacuum of space that constantly needs to be filled with something a practice or a yeah. person or a certain energy yeah. holds different space but um is it kind of like a static in a way because of that do you see
1: yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Which is like, you know,
0: uh,
1: is there actually a development in that mm-hmm. trajectory,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or is it just like
0: well, this is, a conversation is it just different pathos. skin and different yeah. like yeah. textures? Yeah, like, but the, it's the this same. this
1: archetype of the of the you know intellectual who catches the pathos of the moment mm-hmm. and Ignites a lot of people to begin uh, a spiritual journey or an intellectual journey. Mm-hmm. Alan Watts is another one, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, Alan Watts is still like I, you know, I still encounter lots of people in the parkour community who are who are like big Alan, Watts. young guys doing their thing, and then they run into their existential crisis, which is like, okay, <laughs> is jumping really my life? Right? <laughs> like, like it was really it's really fun, and I devoted my whole self to it, and then it turns out I'm 25. 23 or 24 whatever and like i have this extraordinary skill set like i'm what you know mm-hmm. i'm the top you know thousandth of a percent of human physical potential um and i can't get a job
0: <laughs> yeah there's a you talked about coordinating like your yeah. body okay we've already maxed that out we're nine or ten yeah. out of ten on on coordination yeah. of the body it might be good to explore some of these other dimensions and, and coordinate yeah. across and so uh, people
1: end up you know, Alan Watts, stand up, uh, Jordan Peterson. It's, I I find it really interesting because, you know, one thing I'm going to probably piss off some of your listeners. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say it. When, when I started parkour, it was cool because it was a kind of, it was, I feel like it was like this liminal cultural space where, the the salience of your identity as a parkour practitioner was so high that it helped like hide all the differences. And it mm. made it like you were so it was so cool to meet somebody else who did parkour that you could mm. like forgive them for not being aligned with you politically. Mm. And then it and then it was like because it created that really strong sense of common identity, you could start talking across these ideological lines. So I remember early on, like we had, you know, like. Like back in the back in the early aughts, um people were still really big on the like creation versus like intelligent design oh, versus yeah. evolution debate, right? And I remember like getting into that debate with people who came in the parkour community, and it was totally different than having that debate with anybody outside of the community because it was like we cared about each other because we were all parkour athletes. Huh. And so there was this sense that like parkour was a safe space from political polarization and what i've noticed is that like it, it feels to me and maybe this is kind of like specific to the west coast but it feels like the the mainstream of the parkour community has become very woke and they've become very very intolerant of anything that is not right it's it's like um you have to be you have to say straight your pronouns you have to say with tinks, you have to like You have to send all these signals of having a specific political ideology. And that's, that feels like it's socially enforced. Mm. That's been my sense of it. And then, but then on the other side, like there's this whole group of people who are quietly like really into Jordan Peterson. (laughs) I remember going to see a Jordan Peterson thing in like 2016. And there were like seven parkour guys who had no idea were into Jordan Peterson who were there right we just saw each other in line like oh okay
0: (laughs) um the secret the yeah that's so funny
1: right and and obviously like peterson's an interesting character because he's like i've been listening to his 2017 lectures recently and they're they're amazing like they're so good like he's legitimately a superstar intellectual and he's put together a lot of incredibly important ideas like bringing young in line like like getting young in 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 um in dialogue with trying to solve like how does young connect to like good the best that we know of like modern neurobiology and like Mm. the development of neurobiology and the developmental psychology from piaget like these are really important connections and he was super legit and he's also like intellectuals are often trained to not speak with emotion and Peterson has this real power to connect to the pathos in rhetoric and to move people. But there's this element of him that's attracted to the culture war and that ends up like, like tilting at windmills within the culture war, which is which has its own attraction too. So it's like if you're a little bit like peeved about the the intensity of the political ideology it's like he's that great person to go grab onto mm-hmm. to be like yeah like <laughs> screw <laughs> the work right yeah um which i think ultimately i i think mostly that's not really helping um that's my my perspective on that i guess has evolved a lot in the last few years but mm-hmm. i don't think that element of his character is really Adding a lot of value. Like I think it's important to have people who can say, "Hey, the emperor has no clothes." Mm-hmm. But there's a certain point at which you gotta like move on and just make things happen and fix things and stop stop whining about the emperor's lack
0: of clothes. Yeah. No, I feel yeah. you big time. I think one of the things that I learned when I sort of failed at becoming whatever I thought I was gonna become, uh, you know, I I've, I've, I've succeeded yeah. and failed at the same time in a weird way um, yeah. on many levels. Like so. I sort of did many of the things I set out to do in parkour except my life didn't like have the character of like, it wasn't just, all right, now I'm on cruise control or whatever I thought I was going to happen that um, I was just going to become some kind of perpetual parkour athlete, you know, you know, star of some sort and failing at that also helped me realize that not instantly over the course of like years of kind of dealing with, with um, sort of the repercussions of having to make a pivot realize that that success would have trapped me in a weird way. It would have mm-hmm. kept me stuck in cause it was working. I had a formula going and sort yeah. of, the, you know, this is sort of a young man's uh, I think right of passage and to a degree, because I think a lot of, I don't know if it's a male characteristic, but I feel like it, it might be a masculine characteristic, to like wanna like create something and solve it and make it, all right, I finished, I finished life. <laughs> like oh I, I yeah, created yeah. the formula, I created, I kind of thought I thought of the perfect formula. And so I was like, oh, if I just do this, this and this, I'll just be so happy and it'll just keep exponentially compounding. And I thought yeah. that that could go on forever. And when it didn't, I realized that I would have stayed stuck in there cause I was getting a certain amount of return on my investment in a parkour for so long that I thought I could literally just ride it out until the end of my, my days. But yeah. I was, f- what I didn't realize was that I was at sim simultaneously, not developing myself across many other different dis- disciplines and dimensions, and all this to say, because Peterson has become so successful, I wonder if that has somewhat stunted his growth in the same way. Like I, I wonder if some success, in a way, if you sort of engage with it, it, it almost in invariably stunts your growth because once you have an identity or, or a, a value or a machine behind what you, what, what people are resonating with, you're stuck there being that yeah. character for so long. And yeah, I agree that I think Peterson and Joe Rogan's kind of like a new um, version of this. I would say even, you know, uh, these are people that I, I think Joe first and then Peterson probably for me. And now, you know, I'm on to saw guru and I went on to different people that I looked, looked to, to learn things from, but mm-hmm. I can see why people are upset with some of these characters for their lack of development, but they also sometimes are missing, I would say, the idea of like, well, yeah, they might be an excuse for someone to be kind of shitty and, you know, Mm -hmm. complain continuously about things that don't, they're not helping with anymore, but at the same time, they are helping that person that was like me actually take it to the next level and evolve, and, and there's a place for me to engage with these new ideas, so... I hope yeah. I'm making sense. I mean, sense, I think we have, basically, have to recognize yeah.
1: that intellectuals are humans, yeah. right? Yeah. And they have like they have like you could be an extraordinarily productive and really, really valuable intellectual in one area, hmm. and total fuck up in another, right? Heidegger is one of the most important philosophers that we have. He supported the Nazis, right? Um, if you've heard of the book Zen and the Art of the Motorcycle Maintenance, that's a huge book. That I haven't has this massive impact on people. Well, that book was actually based on another book called Zen and the Art of Archery, which was really one of the most important books that introduced the idea of Zen to the West. Mm -hmm. And that was written by a guy named Eugene Harajal. That book was introduced to me by Tom Wexler, who's Israeli, right? But Eugene Harajal went from Japan studying Zen to Nazi Germany and became a Nazi soldier, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, All, all the good intellectuals are Nazis. That's not what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is that we—it's—it's it's a difficult thing. Like I was actually just talking to uh, another guy in the parkour community about this idea of like how do we separate out people and the value that they offer versus like the the damaging aspects of their character because we all mm-hmm. like we all have flaws. Totally. But the other thing that I think people really don't realize about intellectuals is that. Intellectual production is like physical production. It's like, you don't, you don't like look at David Bell and be like, oh man, he's a piece of crap because he can't jump that, uh, jump London gap again, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like you're like, yeah, he was 27. Now he's 47. (laughs) Like, of course, of course, he's not going to go back and do that jump, right? It's the same thing. Like most intellectuals peak in their, their production in their thirties and forties, and then they're not going to continue to be as productive and, innovative Mm -hmm. and like creating the cutting edge of of intellectual work forever, right? There's a point at which, you know, you've you've said some of the best stuff that you've said. Mm -hmm. With Peterson, I think that he's in an interesting place because, you know, I think that he really deserved to be much more well-known before he became famous. Mm -hmm. Then he probably doesn't deserve to be quite as well-known as he is now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, and, and so we went from, like an intellectual whose work really, really deserved to be much more broadly consumed, to a political uh, political figure, who, you know, like I was, I was listening to him on Joe Rogan. They were talking about climate change, and it was the dumbest thing I've ever heard him say. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That he was going off on climate change, and yeah, I remember that. I was like, it was eh. totally incoherent. It was yeah. utter.
1: <laughs> it was utter nonsense, right? And I'm not like, I'm not like a huge like climate alarmist guy. It was just like the way that he was presenting that argument was was absolutely absurd. Mm-hmm. And um and there's a certain contrarianism in his character and I recognize it. It's in me too, right? Mm. So you you you're you're looking for where the mainstream narrative is wrong.
2: Mm.
1: And that that can be really valuable, but there's a point at which it can become its own its own um trap, right? Mm. Like <laughs> I've seen this happen to people over and over again. Like myself, I was a mainstream left-wing person um, up until like 2008. There's a point at which it was like, I feel like the people on that side are lying to me about really important issues. Okay. So what do you do? Do you go and like figure out your answers to everything yourself? Like that's hard. That's really cognitively expensive. But there's these people over here who are selling a perfectly good off-the-shelf worldview that happens to not be false along the the lines of Mm -hmm. of what you've already discovered is false, right? So it's like, oh, they're telling me the truth about this thing that I've discovered is important to me, or at least what I perceive as the truth. So I'm like, okay, they're the truth tellers. But probably not. They're probably lying to you (laughs) on a bunch of other dimensions too. So it's like, Everyone wants an easily adopted off-the-shelf worldview, mm. but you don't good good worldview attunement, in my opinion, until you invest in like a bespoke worldview. I hope that that analogy makes sense to people. Like you gotta you gotta figure a lot of this stuff out. out
0: yeah, no, I I, I I think so. Yeah, I, I wonder like what you do. You think that there comes a point in um, in this journey? Let's say I don't think it has to happen linearly, but for for parkour athletes, it probably would happen. If, it, if it's gonna happen, it might happen this way. You know, you get really invested in the movement practice, all right, you start yeah. to learn things, you coordinate along, along that dimension. now you start to get more invested in, you know, philosophy, for example, yeah. and you look to these thinkers and you kind of look for new boundaries. I think for me, like Peterson offered a boundary that was useful. Yeah. I was like, okay, that, I can see like where he comes from there and that's and that helps fill in some of the the map that I'm building. And then you can get, like you said, almost, I would say, you know, maybe not lazy, but yeah, a little lazy. You you don't want to pay that cognitive expense, like you called it. And so you start to adopt the ideas and and ways of thinking that you actually haven't thought through. And, you know, you get a little lost in that space until maybe you don't. And um, eventually, do you feel like you just have to commit to figuring this stuff out on your own? And, And ultimately coming to your own conclusions about everything or not or reserving judgment you know it's uh i wonder if that's like where you land you know is there a point where you stop obviously i think it's important to keep listening but is there a point do you think where people reach where there's nothing there's left to learn from this talking
1: i have this sense that that there's something valuable has popped up like i literally like the hair on the back of my neck just came up a little bit cool I asked my my wife this morning, am I more of a Petersonian or more of a ver, ver, Vervakian at this point? <laughs> and like for years I've been like, ver, John's my friend. Like I text him and ask him questions, right? But I had the sense that like more of the cognitive furniture that I use to make sense of the world actually came from Peterson, which I felt like I felt guilty about because I was like, they're not the same and they do have differences and there's some conflict in their worldviews, right mm. and i was like but john's my buddy right like I should, <laughs> I should i should be i should be in john's camp on this stuff in some way like i had that that sense of disloyalty um but john was like no no, no I, I get it right like he he's so generous with that stuff but um but i but recently i've been like no i actually feel like more of the core stuff at my uh, that, that's influencing my work and my worldview ultimately i'm getting from from john and and i think what you just pointed out is like like at the heart of the reason why
2: Hmm.
1: because you're asking this question of like i think one of peterson's best concepts is ideological possession Hmm. right like there are certain things that someone says and you can fill in the rest of what they say Right? Like Mm. you can just say, I I know exactly what you're going to believe on everything. Right? Mm. So if someone is really adamant that it is always okay for a trans woman to compete with, with women, right? Like, what are the chances that they're pro second amendment zero, (laughs) right?
0: They can't be zero. Right. There's gotta be that one outlier.
1: (laughs) Okay. There's one, there's one outlier. (laughs) Right. But like you can kind of just plug in that person's worldview. Hmm. And I, I don't mean this to say that like, that's necessarily wrong because I think it to, I've been, I've been playing this out because I I am, I don't think that, 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 that someone who was born in a male body should compete as a female. I think that, 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 that this is a, this isn't a gender, this isn't an identity thing. It's a physical thing. And we need to be able to make that separation. But if I was to say only people in the extreme ideological left adopt the position that that, that I'm against and therefore it's 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 not smart. Well, the, the counterpoint is like, well, what about gay marriage, right? Wasn't that also like something that at one point you could almost perfectly predict somebody? Mm-hmm. But I don't think that it is because I think libertarians were like, yeah, I get it. Gay marriage is okay because that it, it aligned on different dimensions. And then I was like, well, what's the, what's the, what's the other side of it, which is like, if someone believes that obama was not born in this country Mm -hmm. right then you know everything about their politics too so this is this idea of ideological possession it's like you go and you adopt everything that comes from a specific thing and then then you end up playing out this this uh non-player character right Mm -hmm. it's like you, you you've heard these slogans all over the time diversity is our strength right um you know make america great again it's like once people are in that place, they're just they're just expressing a possession. The reason I bring this up is because I've seen people do that with Peterson. Mm. Right? Like there's this, there's there's this mimetic layer of Peterson that has penetrated a certain aspect of the culture. And then there's all these people who are just NPCing out their Petersonianisms. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's there's like deep insight from which those memes came out of. And if you go into it, you can find something really good. But a lot of people can't get to the good because they're seeing the mimetic layer and they're reactive against it yeah. for good reason. Yeah. Right. They're like, oh yeah, all these Petersonian kids are just they're just another cult, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but what's interesting about John is that I think. I listened to John early on being asked about Peterson. And he said, like, I get it. Like, I love a lot of his concepts, but where are the practices? Okay. So you're, you're a pragmatist. You're an American pragmatist who believes that like the fundamental Christian worldview is the center of how we solve these problems. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? How do you actualize this pragmatic Christianity? And
0: 12 rules, maybe. So,
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's a good start but 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 i think that what 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 distinguishes what makes what john is doing so valuable is that it's about creating a system by which you scaffold up good worldview attunement Mm. right so it it's not so easy to know exactly right like what the npc version of it is Mm. you can't just be like lobsters and dominance hierarchy and stand up straight with your shoulders back right yeah yeah, yeah. so it's a it's, it's never going to have the same type of penetrative power i don't think because it because people want those easily adopt things right they want to just say i'm going to put on a tie with lobsters on it and now people know that it's i'm one of the subtler. good people, right? it's a subtler right?
0: teasing out yeah would you but, agree that when, Sorry, keep going
1: but when you adopt that layer of it it can be it, it, it's a trap it's just like you talked about with parkour it's like parkour offers transformative power and then if you think that it's the end answer to what you're trying to become in life then it's a trap right it's like you saw that it transformed you and then you would keep investing but it's not transforming you in the ways that you need to be transformed Mm. and so you can end up like in a negative cycle where you're just like putting more and more into something that's delivering less and less Mm. but i I, i've literally like so i did this digital fast recently so i For from February 17th to March 30th, I watched no Netflix, no Hulu, no YouTube videos. And um, and then I I I I tried though I didn't always succeed in not looking at my feeds at all. So I would post on social media and I'd respond to people's responses to me. But I wouldn't read anybody else's stuff for that period of time. Um, And what I did is I went back and listened to John Reiki's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis and i listened to uh jordan peterson's uh maps of meaning and and uh and personality lectures from 2017 and i listened to uh fall of civilizations podcast just only podcasts i'd already consumed was my role for myself oh interesting so i've actually i i reached um the sixth episode and i'm on my fourth listen through the sixth episode of uh of of awakening from the meaning crisis in the last two weeks because it feels so at the center of what I'm trying to do with evolve move play. Mm. Um, and one of the, th- he's talking about how Aristotle responds to Plato and essentially starts to lay out some of the, the foundational ideas that we're going to end up rediscovering in dynamical systems theory and dynamical systems theory is like hugely core to everything that I do because as a coach, I'm seeing this that linear coaching and pure technique-focused coaching doesn't understand how the system actually learns, and we have to respect how the system learns, which is a dynamical process, and it and it and it has this sort of common understanding that you can get out of lots of different dynamical processes. So, um, if, if I'm if I throw out Sorry, too much jargon or like this it's isn't clear,
0: a, what, no, yeah, they, I would like you to yeah can you break open that what was the word the, what is it process dynamical process
1: i could dynamical um, systems
0: dynamical system and that kind of learning could you expand on okay. that a little bit as a, yeah. as opposed to the linear yeah. like yeah, just yeah. drills and and technique focus, focused like what does that look like yeah
1: yeah what does that look like so um so a dynamical system is a system that doesn't have like a simple causal um, relationship because it has feedback loops so if i pick up this mug and i'm and i move it why did it move i caused it to move
2: Mm
1: -hmm. right but what causes a tree to grow it's it's not so easy right because it's like the tree grows the leaves (laughs) the leaves capture the sun the sun feeds the tree which allows it to grow the leaves Right. Yeah. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg, the acorn or the oak tree, right? Like you have these feedback loops. I got an much answer for
0: that. It's the egg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Never That's mind. i put that aside. Yeah. I got a rant. On that. I,
1: I, I, yeah. Phylogenetically, it's the egg. But, <laughs> it, but trying to answer the question at the phylogenetic yeah, level yeah. shows that you misframed the question. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but Fair enough. But, okay. So, so when you learn, um, you're you're engaging in these feedback loops, right? And you have an inherent drive and capacity to learn. So if we treat it as a linear process, it doesn't really work. And there's all sorts of there's all sorts of points at which treating we, we tend to treat movement as if people were machines and they're not. And this tends to fail. Um, and so it's one example of the develop the development and kind of understanding of of dynamical systems comes through motor learning, specifically the work of Nikolai Bernstein. Mm. So bernstein discovered that if you if you um look at an experienced um blacksmith the path that the that the hammer takes to the the thing they're hitting is highly variable on every cycle Hmm. and in fact you can sometimes see more variability in the path to the the effect so there's uh there's more jargon here, but they talk about effectors and effects. The effector is the thing that makes the thing happen, right? And the effect is what we're trying to have happen. So if the effect that you want is to shoot a basketball, right, you mm-hmm. want you, or the basketball to go through the hoop, you want that that thing to be consistent. <laughs> oh, I see. Make that thing consistent by making everything that led up to it consistent. It turns out that's not how we actually work. If mm-hmm. you're if you're building a machine, you want those tolerances to be as tight as possible. But we actually um, have this this element of dynamics where you are trying to attune all these variable things that are coming together to create the output. So if you look at Steph Curry, who's the best three point shooter yeah. in history, he actually has more diversity of muscle activation patterns to achieve his shot than anybody else.
0: Yeah, it's not like a, understand- it's not a machine. It's not a robot. It's it's, it's different every time. It's every time sensitive to the situation he's in. Yeah.
1: And and Bernstein lays out why this has to be the case in, um, in this. He, he lays out two fundamental problems. One is the degrees of freedom problem, and the other is the con- uh, um, condition. Um, blanking on the word, but um, context-conditioned variability. So, if Steph shot like a robot, where it was exactly the same every time, he would he would miss almost every time. Because the context will be different every time. Mm. Is his body moving forwards? Is it moving backwards? Is it moving side to side? Is it rotating? Did he get bumped in the air? How tired are his legs? Mm. Right. Is it the third quarter? Is it the fourth quarter? Did he just sprint up the court? Did he just have a defensive play? Right. All those things are variable. So he actually has to utilize the this motor abundance, this capacity of his body to have lots of different solutions to reach the same effect. It's the same thing with the blacksmith. So what we find is that there's um in motor learning when they talk about positive and negative variation so there's variation that takes you away from the solution so if you're shooting a basketball or doing a precision jump everything that doesn't result in you controlling the precision jump or the basketball good that's negative variation so novices will be higher in negative variation Mm. than than Mm. elites but there's also variation that actually stabilizes the performance so the classic example that that um that I think is a really nice illustration of that is imagine you take two fingers and you're holding, uh, you're pushing a bar down and you're supposed to push it down with, uh, let's say 10 newtons of force. Right. So one solution to that is that both fingers are pushing down with, um, with five newtons of force. Right. Mm. If we were to tell you that is the correct solution, you should always be doing that solution. What we would actually be doing is preventing you from being able to use four and six and three and seven, and two, and eight, and one, and nine, which are all positive variation. Mm. And because the reality is that sometimes one of your fingers is going to do like, something weird going to happen, all of a sudden, it's going to be at a four, mm. you want to be able to adjust for that with the six, that's, that's the fluctuation. So you have fluctuation around your, your, your motor solution. So the way that we coach a lot is, is over cueing, and actually, we end up trying to get rid of the fluctuators that are actually important for stabilizing the performance um so so yeah so that so then the way that we coach with the ball move play is very heavily influenced by what's called the constraint led approach so rather than saying this is the right way to do a kong ball we're going to teach you exactly how to do it and we're going to be like okay your hip is supposed to be here you need this angle of your shin you know you need to be your, your whole body needs to be below the height of the object you're going over at some point.
2: Mm.
1: We think it's very likely that as coaches, we're gonna misidentify some of those elements or that they're gonna be variable from athlete to athlete. Like what is the optimal width from, between the um, front foot and the back foot on a con ball?
0: Yeah, it depends on your is skeleton that, probably a little bit, right? Yeah, Is that and your is height that, and you everything, know. the height of the wall, the thickness, everything, the texture, all of it all the variables. Exactly. Like, so, are you on
1: sand? Are yeah. you on hard turf? <laughs> are you on a gymnastics floor? Do you have broad shoulders and narrow hips? Do you have mm-hmm. narrow shoulders and broad hips? Do you have long legs proportionally? Do you have short legs proportionally, but we're like, you should always be exactly two <laughs> of your feet between your feet. When you do your takeoff, we're actually going to limit the athlete's ability to be adaptive. Mm-hmm. So instead of that, we try to introduce the circumstance in which the athlete can find a solution that that is broadly the type of solution that we're looking for. Mm. So a really simple constraint that we've used is have an athlete. So one of the things that you'll see is that most a lot of athletes will try to do at, uh, um, a punch takeoff. Right. So in, in motor learning theory, we talk about this idea of uh, of local optimums. Right. So you can adopt a strategy that's not the that's not the optimal strategy, but that's sufficiently good in a specific circumstance. Mm-hmm. So you'll see this a lot. If, well, would you uh, say also that it's,
0: it is the optimal strategy in, in even rarer circumstances?
1: But it might. Yeah, uh, there's lots of circumstances yeah. where you want to do a punch uh, takeoff. It's just yeah. not optimal for yeah. the broadest variety of. Sorry gymnastics. to nitpick, but I
0: just wanted to clear. Yeah, it up. <laughs> and,
1: but but the thing is that I think for the most part, it is actually optimal on a gymnastics floor. Mm. Right? You can you can you can utilize the bounce of the springs on a gymnastics floor better by punching hard off of it with both legs than by separating your legs
2: mm-hmm.
1: so lots of athletes learn their vaults first in gymnastics centers or especially when we were coming or when i was coming up back in the day right mm-hmm. and so you you're going to adopt that local optimum but then it's actually hard to get out of it it destabilizes your performance to go and try to find that split foot takeoff. so I, I know guys who are very competent athletes who never learned to do a split foot just because they always got worse whenever they tried to mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but so instead of like taking them through a ton of different drills a simple way to do it is like have them step back a certain distance from it and say okay and make it a little bit of a stretch to get to the vault and just say um, whichever foot they they're going to have back that foot can't go past a certain point and put a little marker on the ground and then they'll find that they're going to be able to solve the problem better by sliding that other foot forward.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And then they're going to learn to take off with their feet separated. So that's the example of how we can use a constraint to help them organize a solution. And then they're, they're able to find the variation within that solution that works for them. Cool. Yeah. Um, So there's, there's tons of of ways we can do that. So, um, so dynamical systems, right? Uh, Man. There's so much to unpack here. <laughs> um, so going back to, I, I wanted to kind of finish the point with Rebecca. I know that um, we had to unpack some of this stuff, but in in that episode, we was talking about Aristotle. Aristotle essentially starts to lay out how we can think about a difference between how the nature of mm-hmm. things create, causes something directly versus how it creates the potential within which something can occur and so when we manipulate constraints we're in in some sense manipulating the potentials that are available for somebody so we want to if you um if you have a if you have someone who's shooting a basketball and they 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 shoot too straight towards the hoop they don't have enough of an arc you can eliminate that potential by putting a barrier between them and the hoop that they have to shoot over Mm -hmm. so that sort of ends up becoming a solution to some problems that we have with a kind of like linear newtonian vision but in that he then starts talking about the idea that um, that within these systems there are these uh kind of what he calls virtual governors right they 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 determine the behavior of the system and then with the virtual governor with a couple of virtual governors you can then create a virtual engine and a virtual engine creates a diversity of of solutions. You create solutions over time when you have this virtual engine. So um, the example of, of like a really beautiful dynamical system, like probably the, the maybe the most important and the first that was really identified is natural selection, identified by Charles Darwin. So evolution operates through these two cost functions, two separate cost functions. One is um, Variation. Variation is driven by mutation and by sexual reproduction. That's why we sexually reproduce is to produce novel variations by basically shuffling the genetic deck. Selection then hones that. So you have one thing that that gets rid of variation and one thing that adds variation. And when you have those two things, then they can do this random walk that creates tons of different potential solutions to the, the central problem of life. So that's a, that's a governor or a, a virtual engine. So the idea that I have is that the, the pr- one of the reasons we fall into this ideological possession is because we're essentially handing people fish instead of t- teaching them to fish still. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like the solution is stand up straight with your shoulders back, climb the diamond dominance hierarchy. It's like, sometimes that's the solution. It's not always the solution. How do you become the type of person who can identify the solution better? Well, you need these kind of virtual engines of character development. And for me, that's fundamentally what having practices of movement, mindfulness, nature, connection, community, and then ultimately maybe spirituality and connection to the ancestors does. Because all of those address fundamental aspects of how we relate to how how we experience being right there's lots of parts of you that aren't perfectly coordinated how do you get them to harmonize mm-hmm. all of those things have to be in relationship to the external world all of those things have to be relationship uh, in relationship to the social relational world as it exists now and the people you're actually with and then in service to the, these sort of bigger transcendent aspects that that arise from it right And then in relationship to the past, because the past is always, you know, like it's not even past, it's always deeply informative. So if we don't have a good relationship to who we are, who we've been, what came before us, then we can't really deeply understand ourselves. So if you think about that, um, uh, my friend Frank Forensic has this this mandala of health. It's mind, body, spirit. uh, You know, everyone talks about those three, but he adds land, um, tribe, and uh ancestors
2: hmm.
1: so it's like when you're well attuned on all of those levels then you're then you're experiencing the most meaningful life and the life where you can best solve the problems that occur for us as human beings solve the problem of being um so plato i think it was plato described someone who who had trained they're trained their lion and tamed their monster as someone who experienced a fullness of being.
2: Hmm.
1: And I like that that term. And I think someone who has harmonized themselves on all of these different elements of of, of relationship to being, that's someone who's going to experience the greatest fullness of being. And I think that we that. I, I actually like I think this is, it's such a crazy revolutionary claim, but I actually think parkour could be the best place to start, mm. <laughs> which is a really crazy idea to me because like well why not? why hasn't it been around before now? Like are we really just the luckiest generation to, or are we that much smarter <laughs> than everybody else? But the thing that I like about parkour um, is that it it's all children engage in it as the primary form of play in the beginning. It's exploring your locomotion. And it reveals to you your relationship with the world. And it reveals to you the relationship of the self. Like, I, I really think it's interesting how, like, I think of martial arts. You asked me, like, what was the, the parkour of the 90s? Mm-hmm. I said skateboarding, but maybe it was actually the martial arts.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like the 80s and 90s, it was like be, like, I grew up wanting to be a ninja, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think it's so strange. Now. It's very bizarre to me that that people train for ninja now. And it doesn't involve martial arts at all. It's just parkour on not very real obstacles.
0: Oh, the ninja warrior stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is that? I don't that is, But it's, it's
1: like, I feel like it's it's an offshoot of parkour in a sense like i think you know i don't i don't think it was very
0: warrior. yeah there was more pop cross-pollination earlier yeah. on i remember that there yeah. was like everyone did a little bit of ninja back when yeah. part, we, when i started doing parkour yeah, yeah. and then it was kind of like you had a fork in the road and people some went the ninja way and i went more of the parkour yeah. way but it wasn't there wasn't as much of overlap anymore well there were no like so it was this game show in Japan that had been
1: around for a really long time. Mm-hmm. There was a small group of super devoted fans. Right. Mm-hmm. It was like almost canceled in Japan. Yeah. And then parkour starts and we get really into it. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause it was a competitive format, you know, and it was yeah. visible. And then, then they bring it to the United States and it's almost all parkour athletes who go over and do it in the beginning. Yeah. Um, you know Brian Orozco and people <laughs> Levi like that. was like,
0: like another Levi, yeah. right? Like that was
1: that was the that was the stars early on in the show from America. And so it, it it grows and I think it's after it becomes big, A&W becomes big, that you see British Ninja Warrior and Australian Ninja Warrior. And so it was like Ninja Warrior was able to pick up the momentum of the parkour community and run with it. Mm. Um but they got certain things right that where they had certain advantages that we didn't have like one of the things that's really interesting to me is the ninja works so i we go to a ninja warrior gym twice a week now um it's awesome it's a great community um and practicing my laches and doing my vaults and doing my climb ups on the warped wall it's like mm-hmm. you know it's just a it's a nice you know it's better than a parkour uh a sorry not better, probably, <laughs> better than a gymnastics gym as a cross training space for parkour athlete. yeah Um, The community is great. And I feel like they're all just like insipid parkour athletes. If I can just get them to shift their perspective slightly. (laughs) But what's really interesting is that it's 50% female, right? Parkour is 90% male. Mm. But Ninja Warrior tried really hard to bring in female athletes early on. And I think it did make a difference.
2: Mm.
1: And I think that's interesting. and it's You know, it's cool like it, it has a real meaning for me because I have two daughters and a wife and like they are enjoying being at Ninja gym in a way that they didn't necessarily enjoy being at parkour jams mm. because, um, because there's other girls there and it just has the sense that it's a place that's for them too. Mm. And I've always been like really skeptical in some sense of some of the like conversations about representation and some of the push that we've had in the community to try to make that happen. But I'm not even wrong on that. Like because it is really it's a beautiful thing to see. Mm. It's it's like there's there's all these like thirteen year old girls doing ten foot laches in there. Wow. And they're doing like they're doing lache to lache to lache. And it's like that's fucking amazing. It's so <laughs> cool to see. Anyways. Absolutely. Um I think I lost the thread there. <laughs>
0: no, you're good. We were talking I mean, we were talking about how Ninja was sort of this offshoot of parkour in a way, and then Yeah that like That parkour is actually maybe the answer in some ways to Uh,
1: why why parkour is like the answer.
0: So, so the best place to start because yeah, keep going.
1: So, in Japan, in Japanese martial arts, they make a distinction in some sense between, or not even just martial arts. It's actually just a a distinction in Japanese practices between a do and a jitsu.
2: Hmm.
1: So, jitsu just means technique, like a, a body of technique. So, like, maybe I'm a, a Navy SEAL, right? And I, like, my job is to to get into places. And I'd be like, hey, I could go learn some parkour techniques to help me do my job. i just be coming and adopting some of the parkour jitsu, right? Mm-hmm. The Do, like Judo, Aikido, that D-O is the Japanese for Dao, right? Mm-hmm. Or the way Way. it's the, you know, it's, it's as in Taoism. So there's a point at which you can treat a a martial art or a tea ceremony or, um, or calligraphy as a technique, or there's a point at which you can see it as a pathway to self mastery within the martial arts. There's something strange, which has happened, which is that the, arts that are really good at the Jitsu tend to neglect the dough mm. and the arts that are really good at the dough tend to be full of spiritual bullshit.
0: <laughs> yeah. Very interesting.
1: Right. I, I've had this conversation with my friend, Matt Thornton, who I think is a huge intellectual figure in understanding the martial arts, you know, he says you, there's way more potential for character development in Jiu Jitsu in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu than there is in Aikido.
2: Mm.
1: But in Aikido, they will try to actively drive you towards character development. And mostly in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you won't. And I think that that there's a mistake in both places. Jiu-Jitsu plays the game, which really teaches you. But it doesn't help. It doesn't give you a pathway to try to learn the right lessons from the game. It doesn't put them in a broader context of the dough you should be seeking. Hmm. Aikido puts it in a broader context, but doesn't play the game that can really teach you. Mm. And that's broadly true of all the Doe-based martial arts, in my opinion. They don't play the games that really teach. What's cool about parkour is you can't, right now there's no bullshit, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Like, you can go into a martial arts school and be told that you can knock someone over with chi. Nobody mm. in parkour is going to be like, I cheated myself across the man. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. No, it's uh, there's this honest in that way.
1: Yeah, there's a yes. There's a fundamental confrontation with reality that happens in parkour. You have to tell yourself the truth. Mm. But there's something about the martial arts which is very attractive to bullshit. We all want to believe that we could train ourselves to be like Yip Man or Jackie Chan or you know Bruce Lee and take on fifty guys and kick all their asses at once. It's like it's just not true, right? (laughs) <laughs> the truth is you could be like the best MMA fighter in the world. And if someone clocks you when you're not looking, they could kill you. Yeah. Right. You, you're you always vulnerable. That's what you find when you practice real violence.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, but the bullshit is so attractive. Um, and, and the cool thing about parkour is I think it it, it strips it all away. And it, and it just makes you have a relationship with you and the environment. I think that that can, can give us a pathway into a kind of embodiment and a type of self-knowledge that can be a more powerful scaffolding up for these other practices than anything else. I think once you put it in connection to mindfulness, it's like once you engage in metacognition, you start asking yourself, okay, I'm more courageous when I'm jumping. Am I more courageous in my relationships? Mm how could i gain that how could i pull more out of my practice how could i gain creativity in parkour and apply it to work how could i gain problem solving and apply it to to you know dealing with my parents right once you you're there you're already really you've got a strong virtual engine for character development mm-hmm. and then if you add in like intentional dialogue and community practices like treat the way that you relate with other people as a practice, just like your parkour, Mm -hmm. and then treat the way that you interrelate with the natural world in the same way. And then treat the way that you interact with the idea of the transcendent, interact with the idea of the past, in all those ways, that to me is the most profoundly powerful virtual engine of character development that you could create. Uh, And you know, I have to say we've done four, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. We're, we're, once you get into the element of the spiritually, it's, it's it's so much bigger problem, right? Again, this is another realm where people really bullshit a lot. And so it's hard to, 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 to navigate it there. And also people have these profound commitments to specific metaphysics and religious traditions, which I respect Right. Yeah. Um, and then the ancestor thing is interesting because we got to have an relationship with the ancestors. But that goes bad, too. That's blood and soil, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's weird. so those are like the two most dangerous foundations. Um, once you get into them, it seems like to me. But I do think they have to be addressed at some point. Well, what we've done with with what we do is is really build these four f- fundamental relationships and practices that can mutually reciprocate a greater self-development through And that's, what's really cool is that like, once you start looking at it, you see how once I take on a meditative practice, it can make me better at parkour. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Right. And, and parkour can make me understand my meditative practice better and can make me better at, at my meditative practice. Right. The two things, the two things feed each other. They donate to each other, but not only do they donate to each other, it's like, you can imagine that something that's more important than either of them. And the two of them together feed it better than either of them alone. So, I'm writing about this right now. I'm going to publish an essay, hopefully in the next few days, about the ecology of Practices. But if I say mindfulness can make you better at parkour, does that make sense
0: to you? Yeah. Okay. Why? How does it make you better at parkour? Because it, the way what jumps to my mind is uh, being aware of our how, the choices you're making, yeah. how you're trying to, like the challenges that you choose to engage with, how you choose to engage with them will develop your character, will develop deeper or it could betray your own trust in yourself and allow mm-hmm. you to do either greater things, um, get you injured or... You know get you killed even but like (laughs) um,
1: yeah if you're um
0: or allow you to do you know something almost miraculous so so there's
1: two things you tapped in there one is is like starting to get at the idea of how it how it helps but also it's like maybe mindfulness is necessary to keep parkour from going into the dark side (laughs) yeah like we joked about this before, but I, I wrote this thing. I never published it, but I wrote this like, "How to know what kind of parkour athlete
0: you are." <laughs> and I, I think like, I've seen know, this, but yeah. Go over if it again, I send this to you. I, I think I remember that. Did you publish oh, it somewhere? Yeah. I never published it. Oh, okay. I, publish it.
1: I don't know if the stereotypes are even up to date. It's like it's probably yeah. like five years old. But, <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: the game changes so quick now. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. Was like you, you know, you're you're wearing gloves and skinny jeans and skate shoes it's like you're a noob right <laughs> yeah and you'll probably have dropped this by uh and your knees are going to be uh wrecked in six months but it doesn't matter because you're going to drop this when you get to college anyways mm. uh, nice <laughs> you, you know <laughs> you got yeah you've got a man bun you're wearing uh you know you're wearing feyus and sweatpants it's like oh god You've forgotten about obstacles and you think uh, locomotion only means screwing around on the ground. You're a movement culturist. Right? <laughs> well, my yeah. stereotype of, of Colorado was, you know, you're wearing merm shorts.
0: Ala. <laughs> <Hello. laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we made it. high, very, uh, uh, you know, designer socks. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, your precisions are incredible, but do you really do all this, uh, all this stuff at height because you go, I probably want to die. <laughs> right? that, was, that was the question, right? Like there's so many guys who I feel like there are, are playing with existential crises. Mm. Oh, 100%. Wow. While, while doing these things at height. And it's like, I have this question that, that I, I, this is just an observation I've seen over and over again, which is guy starts parkour right? Most of the young guys who start parkour, they're like, they weren't good at team sports. Maybe they're kind of skinny and not naturally big, powerful guys. A lot of them are gamers. So maybe they, you know, they, Mm. they weren't eating well, they were drinking Mountain Dew and and doing Twinkies, eating Twinkies with their friends, right? They're super shy. And, you know, they've got pimples and stuff and they're 15 years old and they start parkour. And like a year later, they put on like 20 pounds of muscle, they're tan and bronzed. They have started to eat well, their skin looks nice. Right um they're they walk around with confidence they can do this amazing shit and they just are terrified of talking to a girl completely <laughs> still haven't figured that out at all right? yeah you know like like if you literally would just like go and start a conversation with a girl like you could have a girlfriend mm-hmm. like, you No, know, I'm, I'm just gonna wait over here to be the 10th <laughs> guy in line for the one girl in the parkour community right
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
1: You know, you've seen it over and over and and it's like, okay. So, and they'll tell you this was life changing. It's transformative. It's amazing. I'm so much more courageous. Like, are you, Mm. are you really courageous? If you can't do this one thing that's
0: super important to you, right? Or like, are you more scared of girls than death? Yeah. And if so, (laughs) do you need to confront that fear? Like, it's cool that you can, you know,
1: or, or, you know, that one's really obvious to me, but one I've seen play out a lot is family promise. Mm. That's something I'm seeing more and more is a lot of people who come into parkour have serious family trauma mm-hmm. and they don't know how to deal with that at all. And they're hiding from it by being in the parkour community.
0: Very interesting.
1: They're not, taking, they're not taking their courage back
0: to that at all. Yeah. Powder, and, parkour community has that whole Lost Boys kind of vibe sometimes oh, yeah. to it where <laughs> it's never never land, baby. And that's like that's it what is. I was talking about when I was talking about, you know, yeah. that was my dream. I had the Peter Pan yeah. dream essentially, which was, yeah. oh, if yeah. I can stay in this space forever, I'll never have to <laughs> deal with any of that shit. I don't even remember what it is because I'm so lost in this right now.
1: Exactly. So, so you, so I, so I think like you can go to a jump, right? So you go to do the biggest jump that you've ever done. It scares mm-hmm. the shit out of you, and you do it. And then there's like two paths that you can do, right? You can be like, oh, I remember what it's like to overcome fear. And now, the next time that something is scary. Whether it's talking to your boss or your parents or that girl that you like or that boy that you like, or admitting that you like boys when you are a boy, like whatever it is, whatever that dimension is, some it can transfer. Mm. Or it can rebound. And you can be like, I feel like a coward when I have to talk to my parents. I feel like a coward when I try to talk to girls. I feel like a coward when I do this, but I feel strong when I do parkour. Mm. So I'm just going to go do parkour mm. because that's where I feel strong. And, and that's what we want to avoid. Right. And I've, I've seen this, like, I, I believe every transformative practice has this, right. Mm-hmm. right? Like I, I've met some Vipassana practitioners who are just completely dead to emotion. Right. Mm. I've seen lots of people who've gone into like deep emotional work and just gotten taken apart to the point where they just can't put themselves back together. They're just an ongoing emotional crisis all the time.
2: Mm-hmm
1: like you know like most of my experience in martial arts is that it like really helps me regulate aggression which is pretty natural to my temperament but i've been to specific schools now where i can see that like it's not really a place where people are cultivating the ability to to deal with aggression it's more like a place where people are playing out their desire to
0: be a bully. right yeah it's like i mean i haven't had a, that experience but i yeah. can see and you can where see you're the guys from.
1: who do that who come in and who are like i did take some I'm naturally bigger and stronger than everybody you know what
0: i did go to an easton there's a gym here in denver that's pretty um yeah. good for martial arts and i took some jiu-jitsu yeah. classes there and i, I want to return to it eventually but i just yeah. during covid i was like i'm not doing that with the mask on yeah, yeah. i just wasn't interested yeah. um and there was absolutely a lot of i came into it with such a for for the peers around me because we were all beginners obviously i'm like it's one of my first classes my level of development in terms of like ego um awareness was so much higher than most of the dudes there that maybe hadn't had already some kind of practice that they had really engaged with and there was dudes there were trying to really hurt me and it ripped my arm yeah. off and it's like dude i mean i'm not a giant anyways i'm like what it, and they there yeah so i know exactly what you're talking about it's like there's people there that are working out their bully fantasy for sure um, yeah absolutely so you're
1: so all these practices it's like they can reinforce your neuroses and and we, this, is an, this is an idea i got from a, uh a guy who used to be a friend of mine i'm not a friend of mine anymore mm-hmm. but uh, fair credit uh, to mark um <laughs> this is uh we choose the practices that reinforce our neuroses mm-hmm. right mm-hmm if you're naturally high in risk tolerance maybe you choose parkour yeah right if you if you're easily perturbed by the world you choose feldenkrais in yoga but some people develop an equanimity from their feldenkrais practice that takes them into strength in the world or their seated seated practice right that can hold that equanimity but some people actually i've seen the opposite happen they become more and more fragile It's like they they get this this feeling of being at peace when they're rolling around on the ground or they're sitting and it becomes addictive to them and then everything that 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 takes them away from that they go more and more away from Mm. um and it's it's like you can become addicted to the thrill of parkour the 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 peacefulness of, of meditation the, the the sexual energy of dance, like whatever it is, there's all these pathways that that you can go into addiction and you end up in this reciprocal narrowing, what, what John calls reciprocal narrowing. So it's like, you have these feedback loops that take you back and back always to that place Mm -hmm. rather than expanding you. Yeah. And, um, I think that's why we have to, like, if you, you ask me, like, where do you see the parkour community going? I don't know where the parkour community is going. I can't see that. Hmm. What I want to see the parkour community growing into is something that, let's call it a gymnasia that provides the grounds for a stronger, for the type of philosophia that can help us solve the real problems that we have. So we're not just going from the Ken Wilber to the Jordan Peterson. Mm. We're actually learning the real lessons and not adopting the ideological uh, ideological puppeting. Mm. And we're actually becoming the types of people who can solve the problems that we have. And that's a strange thing maybe to say about the parkour community. But I actually think that we have something that can donate to that very powerfully and I would like to see more and more people in parkour starting to wrestle with that and to start to take the idea of parkour philosophy much more seriously um and to to read plato right to listen to john rovsky to to listen to jordan peterson at his best right mm-hmm. not not jordan peterson arguing about trans stuff on on Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. Jordan Peterson talking about Piaget and Young and those things read maps of me read. Um, you know, I, I think I said my friend for read David Abrams, like, right? put start looking, start asking yourself. If I feel like parkour is powerful and transformative in my life, how is it transforming me? How do I want to be transformed? Is parkour the best tool to achieve that? Are there other tools that can reinforce it and grow what it is? That's when I think that you know, if you think about parkour is this fundamental idea of like, let's overcome obstacles. Let's become the type of people who can do it. Like I mean, be what strong I love about be useful, Jordan,
0: right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. What I loved about you like we we're talking about the philosophy and the embodiment of it. I think parkour is the is a is a radical embodiment of a philosophy of becoming a heroic individual. Mm. Because you say, here is a problem. It's scary and it's hard. I'm going to go do it. And you 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 act that physically out over and over and over again for years. Like that's a foundation for character. If we understand that and we say it's it's not the jump it's how that jump is forming me over time
2: mm.
1: and we push into that then I think that that what parkour can offer the world becomes something really big
0: I absolutely love that thank you I know we're right up against that that hard stop yeah. time so I think this is a good place to maybe conclude because that was that was great I think that's really wonderful I appreciate it awesome Um, anything else you want to add or should we no I think I hit it that was like sometimes (laughs) I feel like I
1: groove
0: into something really and I'm
1: like that that was good I I said it I said what I needed to say
0: well absolutely go check out Rafe's um, everything will be in the description as always we all know you know and you guys Evolve Move Play you have some great workshops I hope I can do one you know one of these days I'm not been able to participate in Return to the Source or anything like that yet but I'm definitely inspired to to do so one Whenever it yeah. happens. Let's I, I make think, it happen. Let's yeah. make it happen, my friend. <laughs> uh. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Rafe, again, for being on the program. Thank you guys for listening. And please go check out the description stuff to support the podcast, subscribe, all that good stuff, or leave comments, blast up those reviews with five stars, and go visit Rafe's links. And if you're in the Americas especially, or if you have the kind of um interest you know in the northwest you should go check out some of his retreats i would love to go myself maybe i'll see you there this year we'll figure it out gave myself a freaking sweet haircut last night you guys can't see the back which is good and i will see you on the next episode much love